0: All right, psychology nerds, welcome to another episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, one of your hosts, and I'm here, as always, with my friend and co-host, chair of the UW-Green Bay Psychology Program, Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dungus. How's it going, G?
1: It is going very well, like kind of a, a little bit of a shocker. So, When we're recording this, it's in the middle of October, and there was a snowflake on my weather app. And um, whenever there's a snowflake on my weather app, I begin, I commence my anti-winter rant. Wow. That happened very early this year.
0: I wouldn't have thought that about you. I thought you were going to embrace nature in all its forms, but no?
1: No. No. (laughs) I'm really like a fair weather conservation psychologist.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You're, you're pro global warming for that very reason. (laughs) It's my understanding. Is that that (laughs) as far as.
1: Yeah, definitely. Don't quote me on that, but like (laughs) snow in October is just not okay, but it didn't actually happen. Um, So it's another one of those, like the weather app just, Does not know how to predict the weather. And so I should stop looking at it. Yeah. I think the moral of this sad little story. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I am with you. I look at the temperature it is right now when I'm about to leave the house. And then that's it. I don't look at the next day or the day after that or anything like that. I will tell you, I spent the weekend at a soccer tournament. I was cold like never before, (laughs) could not get warm. It was a real bummer. so, yeah, and it, it was that kind of, like, chill that just, like, wet ground. I, it was a bummer. I didn't like it. I like but watching soccer.
1: Yeah, and and hopefully the game was enjoyed by uh, the uh, small humans playing it. <laughs> it.
0: It was. I will, you know what, this is a topic for a different episode, but at some point we're going to talk about the pressures that come with being an anger researcher when you're out in public and you are angry. <laughs> Because I found myself really frustrated with some refing decisions and not really feeling like I could voice those frustrations the way I want to, uh, because I kept thinking someone's going to call me on this and say, hey, anchor guy. Um, So, anyways, (laughs) that's a topic for another uh, discussion. But today, talking
1: about today,
0: yes, today we've got some incredible guests that I am really excited to talk about uh, and talk with, I should say. Our guest today is an award-winning scholar here in the psychology program at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. He has a master's degree in experimental psych from Northern Michigan University and a PhD in biopsychology from Virginia Commonwealth University. You have heard him before on this show talking about uh, his research on e-cigarettes and other drugs. It's Dr. Todd Hillhouse. How's it going, Todd? It's going well, no no snow, so that is good. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited to talk to you about um, about this research. I've been thinking about it for a while because this this sort of initially landed on my radar over the summer. And so um, we'll get to that in a second. First though, I want to uh, to introduce our other guest. She is a senior psychology major here at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay and she works in Dr. Todd Hillhouse's lab. It's Katie Partridge. How are you doing, Katie?
2: I'm good really good uh it's warm inside so i'm glad to be inside
0: (laughs) this is a a good opportunity for us to pitch the tunnels here at UW Green Bay yes (laughs) very little outside going is necessary so i want to do a little bit of table setting for our our guests today and talk about why we are gathered here today um so here's what happened this summer uh summer of 2022 Uh, This article came out in Molecular Psychiatry titled The Serotonin Theory of Depression, a Systemic Umbrella Review of the Evidence. It was authored by uh, Moncrief and colleagues in the Division of Psychiatry at the University of College London, and it found, and this is a quote from the article, our comprehensive review of the major strands of research on serotonin shows there is no convincing evidence that depression is associated with or caused by lower serotonin concentrations or activity end quote. This finding was broadcast widely via popular media, lots and lots and lots of articles about it, and not surprisingly, immediately misunderstood by all. Uh, It it felt like at least all, maybe not all, but many. And so I wanted to, um, I think that experience for me was sort of frustrating, watching sort of this this article come out, and then watching uh, lots of people sort of misunderstand it, dispute it, and so on wanted to have uh, some experts on to talk a little bit about what this article really means. Um, Todd, help us out. What does this article really mean?
3: Yeah, I I think it's interesting because it is an umbrella review, right? So they went through and they did a meta-analysis review of of other meta-analysis reviews. So I think maybe some information could be lost in, in the review of reviews of reviews, right?
0: Uh, <laughs> well, hey, can you define those terms quick? Like so what's a for our, our listeners, what's a meta-analysis? Let's start there. You know, you're probably gonna be better at that one than me. I've never <laughs> written a
3: meta-analysis. <laughs> um I, I mean they're they're going back and looking at kind of the the strength of the relationships. They're they're trying to take apart the data. Um, and I think it's important to do is to to look at all these, see how consistent the findings are across the board. Um but i will say overall for people in the field this was not a surprising finding it was right. it's, it's kind of commonly known um and one it's it's really a monoamine hypothesis of serotonin not a of depression not a serotonin hypothesis so i feel like that's almost even the first misleading comment is it's a monoamine hypothesis of serotonin not uh, just of depression not just serotonin um But I think people in the field understand that because we know that one third to maybe a half of patients respond to antidepressants, clinically approved antidepressants. So um, there's been a big push for rapid antidepressants. There's been a big push for better antidepressants. Um, We also know that antidepressants don't work immediately. And so if the hypothesis was as simple as we have decreased or depleted levels of serotonin, then these the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, would work immediately, and they don't. Um, and so I think this just reinforces the idea that it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. And uh, the overall consensus, which has been around for a while now, is that there's something else happening, and we just don't know what it is. So um, we either think that when people take um, antidepressants that... The increased serotonin and dopamine that's happening there, or norepinephrine, depending on which type of um, antidepressant you're taking, uh, produces long term changes. You have to take it for a while to have neurobiological changes that take time. And we're not really, there's no clear evidence if it's like an up, like a downstream signaling effect or a, a signaling effect before um, serotonin. So there's, a lot of people looking at it from different angles, but um, to say they just have lower levels of serotonin, um, that's just an oversimplification of science that we try to use to help the general public understand what's happening.
1: And one thing I read, not in the original article, but an article about the article, which is uh, something that I wanna ask you about uh, as well, because you know, I, I think a lot of times, people think about, you know, like chemicals or um, neuroscience as too challenging to talk about to a, a general population, and so they try and take the information and make it very palatable for the general public. And so, one of the the lines in this article that I read about the article was that people are taking serotonin drugs and they're getting addicted and they have to take it for their whole entire lifetime and they don't even work. And I was like, is that what that article said? So can you talk a little bit about like why that might be happening? Why why is it that we come to these grandiose conclusions when the science is, seems a little bit complicated uh, rather than just talking about the science?
3: Um, I, I honestly think it's a kind of where science has gone. I know that's that's sad to say is that um, if it's not groundbreaking, no one cares. And so there, and that's not how I, when I pitch my research, uh, I try to keep it in the context of my research. Um, but a lot of people feel the need to say, this is, this is the answer. And it might not actually be the answer. And it's to try to sell the science so that you can get the next grant. Because if you don't have the, The best idea, or you don't have the newest um, technique, um, and you can't sell your science, then you can't get a grant. And so I think some of that's part of the issue is just trying to, you know, um, sell this as the end-all, be-all, and and that's normally not the case. Um, But I do want to comment on the SSRI or the serotonin drugs, and um, you said you're on them for your life, and you don't, you cannot um, get addicted to SSRIs. They're not. There's no abuse liability concerns. They generally don't make people like you don't get high on them in any way. Um, But there's there are there are warnings, because if you just stop taking them, it can cause suicidal thoughts. And so and there are concerns with that. And so it's just, you have to be weaned off of them. You can't, it's just not that you're stuck on them forever. You can come off them whenever you want, but you need to do it under the guidance of a doctor and you will slowly wean them off. My cat actually takes SSRIs. I know this is a random point, but um, <laughs> she barbers herself. She must be high in anxiety, but she licks her fur off. And so the vet gave us S she takes fluoxetine or Prozac at low doses to try to help with that. And, um, we had to take her off because we were going out of town and we couldn't find a sitter to come every day. And so we couldn't just stop taking her. We actually had to start two weeks ahead of time where we started cutting her dose. And then we went to intermittent every other day. And so you're think this is a cat, come on, but <laughs> it's, it happens. And so it's not that you're stuck, but there is a, a concern for coming off them too fast. There's a serotonin syndrome and that's what the doctors are trying to avoid, but there's no abuse liability. No one's getting high on SSRIs. Yeah.
0: Can't I want to, you... um, I want to talk a little bit about just the, the because right out of the gate, what seemed to happen on social media and elsewhere is, and this is a question for, for either of you to to tackle, but there was a, right out of the gate, people started saying, okay, so what you're telling me is SSRIs don't even work, right? So to get back to what PSG mentioned, that's not what this found, right?
3: No, this was looking at, and this is a confound, I found, right? This is looking at trying to see, is there any evidence for lower concentrations? And so they looked at um, serotonin and its metabolites levels and different, um, I think in blood and some and, uh, cerebrospinal fluid. And they were just trying to look at main markers that play a role. Mm-hmm. Um, but they like they just picked serotonin 1A because I think it had more articles on it was one mm-hmm. of the reasons. And so um, they were just trying to see, is there a trend of, of lower levels of depression in, or lower levels of serotonin in these
0: um, individuals with depression? Okay. So there's, this wasn't a study on the effectiveness of SSRIs. Absolutely. Not. Um, and, and it feels like, and I mean, you, you even mentioned right at the, right at the top, we have data on the effectiveness of SSRIs. Can either of you speak to uh, to what that data would tell us? Um, yeah.
3: So I th- and it depends on who you read. So it depends on you know what sample you get, but um, generally the consensus is that SSRIs work in about thirty to fifty percent of people, or antidepressants in general. So we have this whole term called treatment-resistant depression. treatment resistant patients. And these are patients where they've tried two, at least two different antidepressant drugs. And, but when I mean different, I mean different mechanisms of action. So it wouldn't be two SSRIs. It would maybe be an SSRI and then something like bupropion, um, which works at more dopamine or a selective uh, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. So if they fail at both of those, then they're deemed treatment resistant. And it just means that most, most antidepressants aren't going to work for them.
0: Okay. And that sounds like that group is basically, I mean, a pretty big group, right? I mean, yeah. we've got about 50% approximately. Yep. And then
3: a lot of those now have gone to ketamine. Um, ketamine was recently approved um, as a nasal spray. There are some places that do IV infusions. Um, ketamine produces rapid antidepressant effects in about an hour, hour to two hours. And If you take an infusion, an IV infusion, they last anywhere from three days to several months. Um, The nose spray is a little less efficacious um, than the IV infusion. But again, even in those people, it only works for about 50% of those people. So there's Mm -hmm. still a cohort that that ketamine's not working in either. Hmm. Uh,
0: Tell me, uh, what do we know about the mechanism by which ketamine works? Like, what do we know about about other than the effectiveness data? This was supposed to be an easy podcast. You're asking me
3: (laughs) all these hard questions. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of different theories, okay? And this is actually is interesting. Uh, There's a lot of different theories, and and there's um, probably too many to go into. Um, But one of the interesting ones that aligns with this study. So ketamine works at NMDA receptors, so glutamate receptors. It's a glutamate um, antagonist. So it's going to block the glutamate signal. And one of the theories is that it's um, blocking glutamate receptors on specific neurons that actually increase the firing rate of things like serotonin and other um, systems. But it's interesting. There's been a several animal studies done where they've looked at the effects of ketamine and they've serotonin depleted mice or rats. So now these animals don't have serotonin in them and you lose ketamine's antidepressant effects. And this is across several studies and different, several labs. And so it's suggesting that you actually need serotonin to produce ketamine's antidepressant effects, Hmm. which kind of contradicts the article that we just, that we were talking about. Um, One thing I do want to talk about on this review and I might, sorry, go ahead. No, please. So one thing I was going to point out, I kind of read through the review and I, and I, again, I wasn't surprised by the findings, but There were a couple of things that were concerning. The big one is medication status on these studies that they included. Um, Many of, I mean, some of them, some of the patients were still taking antidepressants during the study. And so that's going to influence the results, right? Because you're taking a drug that's changing your neurochemistry and and whatnot. There's quite a few where they've done quote unquote drug-free patients, but a lot of those were patients that had previously had taken antidepressants. So again, that confounds it. Cause now there may have been these long-term changes that occurred after years of taking antidepressant mm. and they're not really able to account for those. And then some of them, the washout period is like one of the studies I'm looking at it says four to 57 days. The half-life of fluoxetine, I believe is 30 hours. So it would take you at least five days to get rid of fluoxetine from your body. Not and then plus you haven't gone back to your normal state. You're still going to be in that you know the the change state. So I think there's a lot of confounds in the patients that they had. There weren't very many drug naive patients, um, and this is where a lot of the research gets stuck is because most people who have depression they start taking medications before we can follow them around and do all of these scans, and so it really limits. It's just this big confound that we can't account for. And I think that there wasn't enough in the review to really account for that. And I think maybe that's where people got lost. They didn't, they made a few statements here and there to um about it, but it really wasn't a big like I would have probably had a section that said limitations, you know, they weren't all drug free, they've had experience, it's really hard. And, and I didn't see that. So that kind of concerned me. And I think that's where um some of the people kind of started to run with this and because and, they didn't really f- focus on that.
0: Okay. Well,
1: I think that there's a a lot of thought about like um, studying humans is very complicated, right? Especially when you're talking about drugs, uh, because drugs together are different than drugs alone and uh, the order in which and, and so, Katie, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about like, what has been your experience working um, in the the pain lab, and it's not pain; it's P A N E. The pain lab uh, about being able to look at drug and drugs and their impact uh, in an animal population.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, like, first of all, it's it's really interesting to see like what all happens. Um, and so, the study that I primarily focus on um, is looking at stress-induced depression of digging behavior in mice. So the digging behavior is a natural behavior and basically we're stressing them by giving either a pharmacological stressor or um, a behavioral stressor. And um, so then we're trying to restore them back to their baseline levels using some form of what's typically like an antidepressant. Um, I'm using fluoxetine or Prozac and um, ketamine. So, so far, we haven't really found that, like, these can just, like, restore the stress state um, or, like, the baseline state after the stressor. Um, It can be restored after, like, they're not exposed to the stressor anymore. Um, But so, like, I guess that's, you know, that kind of shows evidence of, like, how, like, multifaceted stress is. You know, it can't just be solved with, like, a simple drug. You know, there's definitely more to it. Um, And... I see this a lot, even with um, you know any of the drugs that we use. Like it definitely changes an animal's behavior. Um, like morphine, we see like a very increased activity for quite a while, um, which is also the opposite of what happens in humans. So that's interesting, you know. Um, and um, vaporized um, nicotine that, well it kind of, uh, it decreases operant responding somewhat. Um, and so overall, I mean, I think it's really interesting to see like what all of these drugs and like how they affect things and the different things that we, like different assays and stuff that we use to test these drugs and their effects.
1: And it, it kind of, gives me hope that we will be able to figure out the answers uh, to these complicated questions with continued research. Do you think that that's true? Um, this is to either one of you. Do you think that there is an answer um, to the uh, anti-depression question? I personally don't think that
2: there is a clear answer. Um, like there's there are so many factors to, any mental disorder or psychiatric illness that you look at. Um, I mean, like there is gene environments, um, you know, there are most likely like chemical imbalance um, reasons, there's just so many different things that can impact them. So I never think that there's gonna be like a clear answer, but maybe there's something to do with like modulatory pathways or just neural pathways altogether.
3: Yeah. And to kind of build on that, I think it's, I mean, we're seeing a big shift, um, or, a, or kind of new field come about called pharmacogenomics. Um, and so the big idea is that a lot of our early studies, especially in kind of pharmacology or, or therapeutics, I guess, because it does not have to be pharmacology. It can be, um, for blood clotting medications and things like that. It was, a lot of it was done in, in white men. And so we're starting to find out that, um, the whole world is not white men and that drugs affect women and minorities differently. And so there are drugs that are really effective in white men, but not effective in uh, maybe a minority group or with women. And so I think we might start to see more individualized medicine. Can we, you know, not a one size fits all, everyone takes Prozac. Can we, are there markers that we can look for to determine which medication would be best? Um, I know this is a big push um, with Medical College of Wisconsin. I know they're trying to push on some of of those ideas and and build a little program so they can educate pharmacists and people on what kind of markers maybe they look for. So I think that's kind of where we're going in terms of clinical is to start looking at biomarkers. And I think in in animal research, which kind of maybe we can identify some of those markers. I think the other thing is also looking at new novel models and, and the digging, the stress effects on digging behavior was our, our goal was to try to develop a rapid antidepressant model. Can we find a model where antidepressants work rapidly in, um, and look more like what we would see in humans. Um, one of the big downfalls with animal research, at least with a lot of therapeutics is that the dosing doesn't resemble what we see with humans. So a lot of the times one injection in the mouse will produce what we call a quote, unquote, an antidepressant effect. Um, but in humans they've got to take it for several days and so the, our goal with this was hopefully that pro, uh, prozac or fluoxetine we would have had to administer it for seven or 21 days to get to restore the behavior uh, we did see a partial restoration of the behavior at seven and 21 days but not back to baseline and then we were hoping with ketamine which produces rapid effects in humans we would see less requirement maybe one injection or three um, but we didn't see that we saw a partial reversal, just like fluoxetine at seven and 21 days. So I think as a whole, we the field is trying to find new behavioral models, also trying to use multiple models. So we get a better idea. So I think that's where we're going is this individualized medicine, creating better animal models, because there's always been this question of do our animal models actually look at depression or antidepressants, or is it just looking at serotonin based drugs? And so we're trying to answer those questions now.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things I was thinking earlier, just as you've been talking about this, and you really spoke to it nicely just now is that, I mean, part of what we're dealing with, I think, is that depression isn't just one thing, right? I mean, it, it, this is something we talk about just purely from a symptom perspective in, in my psychopathology course that, you know, the depression in two different people, symptom wise can look very, very different. And you know, both would be considered categorically, quote unquote, based on the DSM depression, but they, the symptoms aren't aren't that similar to one another, and the people experiencing it have a very different personal experience with it. And so when you add that to some of the findings you've shared with me today, you know fifty percent of of people having falling into that treatment resistant depression category or, or whatever the the ketamine the that 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 effect being you know successful about 50% of the time i mean it it feels like it really speaks to this idea that the idea that one treatment for depression is going to be adequate is far fetched that what you need is some sort of uh individualized approach this way that might include medication and might include some other things it might include a variety of different types of medications and and, and so on am i Am I right? Am I wrong? Is that, does that seem fair? Or what do you think?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it seems really fair. Right. And again, I think
0: it also depends on the cause
3: of the depression, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, people who are depressed or have depression caused by trauma, whether it be childhood trauma, um, sexual trauma, they generally don't respond to medication. Um, It's more of a, a therapy is what is going to help them And so I think, yeah, those are the types of questions we should be asking and and understanding because that will change the line of treatment.
0: Um, That's really interesting. That's actually a finding I was less familiar with, the sort of exogenous versus endogenous depression uh, perspective. But it sounds like um, the research, uh, Katie, you were talking about, that was, if I was understanding it correctly, that's sort of an induced depression, right? That's probably more consistent with like a uh, trauma-induced depression. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, it's kind of like that, like force stress. Um, okay.
1: yeah.
0: This has been fascinating. G, do you have anything else you want to touch on before we finish up?
1: I I maybe just wanted to give a shout out to science. Like uh, I feel like <laughs> I'm like woohoo, go science! But I, I feel like so often when you read a review of of an actual scientific article uh, that you should read it with skepticism. And it's so easy to be fooled by um, the the grab you and pull you in headlines and, and things like that. But like really looking at the research is always The best way to understand, even if you don't understand all of the words, like I read the original article and I don't know all of the terms, uh, but you can read the conclusions and be like, "Wait a second, that is not (laughs) all of what they were saying that it was about." So, a shout out to science.
3: (laughs) And and on that, I was just going to say, and I don't know, Ryan, you had sent me an article. I don't know if I can say the name or where it was from, but um, they they were much more in favor of antidepressants don't work or, we, you know, that very much the extreme in one direction. Um, but it was funny. I was tagged. Apparently My they had cited one of my articles in a different post. And it was kind of similar to this. I, I don't know if it was just on LinkedIn or where she had published it, but hers was much more of a critical oh, view of the review, right? It was a little more critical critique of it and kind of saying, maybe we went a little too far, And so even if you, you know, if you see the article, and you don't understand it and you see a pop culture, try to find other pop culture type of articles because they may have a different perspective on it. um, And that might help you get a better idea of both sides of of what's
0: what's happening. Yeah, I I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think to me, a couple of things jumped out from the sort of the, the umbrella conversation that happened about this. One is the importance of reading past the headline. Um, because headlines are, by definition, oftentimes intended to grab you in a way that, that might be less accurate. And the other is trying to find as much uh, other sources as you can. And I think people speak a lot about going to the original. I think that's great when it's practical. Sometimes people don't understand the original, but also sometimes the original is behind a paywall or or difficult for, for most people to get access to. But but you're, I think that's a great suggestion, Todd, the importance of just Find out, I mean, more than one person has written about this. We can find out what their take is and try and uh, merge those together.
3: And then one quick shout out. You said something about a paywall, right? Articles Mm -hmm. being behind a paywall. Just a quick note. If you ever find a research article that you want and you don't want to pay for it, don't pay for it. Email the author, email any of the authors directly. There's usually an email for the corresponding author. They will send you the article for free. So don't pay for it. Email the author. They will send it to you for free
0: that is i've i've seen you share that advice elsewhere and uh, and i appreciated it then so thank you for that uh, that's great any before we finish up any final thoughts from anybody anything i i should say shout out to the lab all right yeah
3: shout out to the lab we got 10 awesome students working in the lab on multiple product or projects and without them i would be i don't think i'd have a <laughs> life i'd be in a lab and in my office all day every day so awesome. uh, much appreciated
0: well, good. Well, uh, thank you both so much for being here. I also just wanted to, since we're here, behind Todd is a, what appears to be a hand-drawn neuron, uh, which I <laughs> which I think is, it looks like a synapse happening behind you. Am I right? Yeah, it's uh, how cocaine works. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> just, just working on my, uh, my lecture for
0: um, my online drugs and behavior class. I like it. I think that's great. So very good. Um, Katie, Todd, thank you both so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Uh, Georgina, tell people where they can find you on social media.
1: You can find me at Georgina WD. So G-E-O-R-J-E-A-N-N-A-W-D.
0: Excellent. And that's what? Twitter, Instagram? Good.
1: Yes. I'm not much of a tweeter. No? Okay. And I really just like looking at nature pictures on Instagram. So I'm really not the best person to contact. You should email me if you want to talk like smart things.
0: Very good. Excellent. All right. Um, You can make sure to check us out at Psych and Stuff on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find me at Anger Professor in a bunch of different places. like getting questions from people, like it when people reach out. So if you've got questions or ideas, let me know. Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is me, Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Rachel Scray. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salak, and our graphic designer is Kimberly Vleese. Special thanks to our guests today, Dr. Todd Hillhouse and Katie Partridge. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with my co-host, Georgina wilson Dunges. Keep being amazing.